Welcome to the Ravages History Podcast. In the year 280 BC, Greek and Roman forces met on the battlefield for the first time, with the new Roman maniple going up against the centuries-old Macedonian phalanx. The Roman Empire was still in its infancy, and it was only ten years before this that the Romans had gained control of central Italy after winning the Third Samnite War. Though the war that was about to break out in 280 BC, known to us as the Pyrrhic War, is not a struggle on the same scale as the later Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, this conflict is important because it's one of the first major steps the Romans will take on the road to becoming the empire we all know today. And it's also one of the first indications that the Greeks' political dominance in Eastern Mediterranean politics wasn't long for this world. It was only about 40 years before this time that Alexander the Great had died, leaving behind an empire that reached from the shores of the Adriatic Sea all the way east into what was at the time the unknown world, past modern-day Iraq and Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan, reaching into India and the Himalayas. But he died young, at just 32. Just what caused his death isn't known, but Macedonian royalty is famous for knocking each other off. On his death, Alexander had no heir, and there was no successor put in place. After his death, a son was born to him, though obviously he was far too young to take over. A Greek historian named Dorodorus, living hundreds of years after the fact, wrote that Alexander's friends asked him on his deathbed who he would leave his empire to. You know, who will be in charge after you die? Supposedly, the reply was, and I'll just give you the translation instead of butchering the original, to the strongest. What followed were the successor wars between Alexander's generals and family members. These wars lasted the 40 years between Alexander's death and the Pyrrhic War that I want to talk about today. They are so complicated, with alliances being forged, broken, betrayed, reforged and broken again, that it's difficult to keep track of who was fighting who. The point of making this my introduction was to talk about two important things. First, the armies that were fighting each other, and second, to set the background for Pyrrhus's upbringing, the general who would land his army in Italy in 280 BC. So why were these Greek armies so dominant against the rest of the world? And what is a phalanx? The phalanx is a unit of soldiers known as hoplites that form a very dense, closed-rank, rectangular box formation. The hoplites were armed with shields and spears that may have been up to eight feet long. In this phalanx formation, the unit would slowly march forward towards an enemy while staying locked together, the shields protecting them from projectiles. Here's a great thing about a phalanx. The men at the front couldn't turn and run because of the men behind them and the men behind them weren't in any immediate danger, and so didn't feel the need to flee. So the group held together for much longer than other units in battle. Once a phalanx engaged an enemy, they would use their shields to push against the foe, push them backwards and possibly break through their enemy's lines. Once lines were broken, they were very hard to put back together again, and that's when people would run. And when some ran, more would run, and an entire army could melt away in a matter of minutes. What is so special about the phalanx in this time period was the only thing that could beat it, assuming the flanks were protected, was another phalanx. So across Greece and across the remains of Alexander's old empire, the phalanxes were being improved upon. But it was basically the same thing, and the phalanx had a huge weakness as I just mentioned, the flanks. A phalanx was a slow, heavy unit that could not manoeuvre itself to protect those flanks. 
Imagine you're in one now. You may be three or four rows behind the front line, so your spear is down and you're thrusting it at the enemy soldiers just a few feet in front of you. Suddenly, your right flank is exposed for some reason, and there is cavalry bearing down on you. They'll be on you in seconds. Your entire unit must somehow break away from the men just a few feet in front of you, who are also trying to kill you, by the way. Bring that massive spear up vertically, so you can turn 90 degrees to the right, drop the spear back down, and hope that the men on the new front row can also bring their shields up before the cavalry has charged into you. And also help that the old front line can keep the enemies you are just fighting from breaking your formation now they have no weapons driving them back. So it's a balancing act. A general has to work out how long his line must be to keep those flanks protected. But make it too long and you sacrifice the depth of your force. A thin line is easier to break through. There are fewer men pushing you back if you're trying to break them. And directly in front of you, there are fewer men you need to kill before you break through. But what other options are there? There are a few alternatives on what the Greeks and Romans considered barbarians at the time had a far simpler formation. A simple mass of men, armed with spears, axes, swords, shields, and all manner of things, that would line up with no particular unit formation and charge you. A phalanx was most effective against these types of opponents. They couldn't break through the wall of shields, and they were easy prey for the walls of spears jutting out. Unlike disciplined Greeks and Romans, they would simply charge and fight like madmen until they were exhausted and easy to kill. This is the kind of army Pyrrhus was taking with him across the Adriatic to Italy. So who was Pyrrhus? Well, he was the king of Epirus, a region in northwest Greece alongside the Adriatic, just across from Italy. His life before his campaign in Italy and Sicily is fascinating. He was born in 318 or 319, but at just two years old was taken away when an uprising killed his father. Pyrrhus survived, and was taken to the court of Glaucius, a king of an Illyrian tribe. Despite initial doubts, Glaucius accepted him into his court, where he was raised alongside the king's own family. Ten years later, Glaucius successfully invaded Epirus and put Pyrrhus on the throne. But just five years later, Pyrrhus lost the throne in a coup while he was attending a wedding of one of Glaucius' sons in 302 BC. This time, he sought refuge with his sister's husband, Demetrius, the son of the king of Asia. Pyrrhus fought alongside Demetrius at the Battle of Ipsus, one of the countless battles that were part of the successor wars. But they were on the losing side, and Pyrrhus was sent to Egypt as a hostage of Ptolemy I. Hostages in the ancient world were exchanged as part of a peace treaty, to make sure the sides kept the treaty. It was expected that as long as everyone behaved, hostages would be treated as their rank and position dictated. So Pyrrhus was very close to Ptolemy's family, and everyone seems to agree that Pyrrhus was a charming guy, especially Berenice, Ptolemy's wife, who let him marry her daughter. After, Ptolemy gave Pyrrhus an army to retake his kingdom and a fleet to get him there. When he arrived, he found one of his cousins ruling, and they reached a co-ruling agreement. But just two years into that agreement, Pyrrhus learned that his co-ruler had tried to have him assassinated, and so he retaliated in kind, killing his cousin. A few years later, Pyrrhus got involved in Macedonian politics. Alexander, one of the king of Macedon's sons, was exiled by his older brother and fled to Epirus. Pyrrhus then helped Alexander gain the throne of Macedon, and as a reward, Pyrrhus was given more land in the north. But of course, it didn't end there. Remember Demetrius, the husband of Pyrrhus's sister, who took Pyrrhus in after the coup? 
Hippurus fought alongside with at the Battle of Ipsus. He went and killed Alexander and took control of Macedon. This caused some serious tensions between Pyrrhus and Demetrius. According to the historian Plutarch, writing some 300 years after the events, Pyrrhus would take full advantage of Demetrius's absence to attack parts of Demetrius's kingdom that wasn't defendable. Over seven years these attacks took their toll, with Pyrrhus and Pyrrhus's allies in Ptolemy, Lysimachus, another of the successor generals that wasn't on Demetrius's good side, and the unhappy population of Macedon, Demetrius was forced to leave Macedonia. Pyrrhus now sat as the ruler of Macedon in 288 BC, but was pushed out in a war with Lysimachus four years later. It won't be long now before Pyrrhus crosses the Adriatic into Italy. We all know who the Romans are. I personally love ancient Roman history, and that's why I picked it for my first episode. I also love this time in Roman history. They aren't an empire yet, just one of many local powers. Over the previous 50-60 years, they have been fighting the Samnites, along with numerous other tribes, and it all came to a head during the Third Samnite War that broke out in 298 BC, when the Romans found themselves fighting on several fronts. Before the Samnite Wars, the Romans had been using a Greek-style phalanx to fight their opponents, as was standard of the day. Up until this point, the phalanx had served the Romans well. They had only been fighting two different types of enemies, other tribes and cities in Latium that also used a phalanx, and the Gallic hordes mentioned before, who didn't stand a chance against a solid shield wall. When fighting these types of enemies, the terrain on which the fighting took place didn't change. If the Romans fought an opponent who also used a phalanx, both sides would be looking for the same kind of terrain. If they were fighting the Gallic hordes, the Romans were generally able to lure them into a terrain of their own choosing. But now, facing the Samnites, they were moving into vastly different terrain types, with few large open areas of land suitable for a long, unbroken phalanx. And the Samnites weren't stupid. If the Romans were lucky enough to find the right kind of terrain for their army, the Samnites simply wouldn't attack. The Samnites had a much better idea. A pretty standard tactic of theirs was to ambush. In both the First and Second Samnite Wars, the Romans faced humiliating tactical defeats at the hands of the Samnite ambushes. These tactics were so effective because mountains and very hilly terrain often have narrow passes. These passes can just be a few feet wide at times, yet thousands of men need to march through. To be fair to the Romans, whatever kind of army they fielded, they would have been open to an ambush. Yes, the very long spears were not at all ideal for the one-on-one -on -one fighting that ambushes often led to, but throughout Roman history, long after this period, they would suffer massive losses at the hands of ambushes. For example, the Battle of the Tudorberg Forest. Ambushes aside, the terrain was still a problem, and after the Battle of the Cordine Forks, a battle that technically didn't even happen, the Romans had to change something. The Samnites managed to bottle the Romans up in an area with no water and little food. Their phalanx was useless in the terrain, and there was simply no way out. The only option they had was to negotiate an unfavourable peace treaty. After Cordine Forks, the Romans abandoned the phalanx in favour of a new, more manoeuvrable formation. This was the Manipur system, which became known as a phalanx with joints. Before we get into the details of the Manipur and the Roman army, it is important to note that the Roman army at this time in history is not a professional army. It is a citizen army, and each soldier must supply his own weapons and armour. 
Because of this, the army is divided not just by experience and ability, but also by wealth, as obviously not all men can afford the best equipment. So what is the Manipur system, and how is it different from the phalanx? There are a number of very big differences. The Roman army was divided into three groups, Hastati, Principes, and Triarii. And these three groups were arranged into three lines, instead of the single line of the phalanx. The first, or front line, were the Hastati. Hastati were the youngest, poorest, and least experienced soldiers in the army. They would be the first to engage the enemy. If they couldn't win, they could fall back in an orderly fashion behind the second, or middle line, made up of the Principes. The Principes are often described as men in the prime of their lives, with a good amount of both experience and money. This infantry was heavier than the Hastati, equipped with large shields and high-quality armour. In battle, after the Hastati had fallen back, Principes, in most cases, would be enough to defeat an enemy. But for those battles that really came down to the line, the first two lines could fall back and hide behind the third and final back line the Triarii. The Triarii were the oldest men in the army, and the wealthiest. They wore heavy plate armour and carried spears and large shields. Their actual formation was a type of phalanx. Despite all its problems, the phalanx did a great job at holding enemies back, while the rest of the army, in theory, had a chance to recover and reform. It was hoped that the Triarii, being the heaviest, best armoured, best armed and most experienced soldiers on the battlefield would prove decisive at turning a battle that was going against the Romans. So how were these three lines organised? The Manipur was actually the name of the individual groups that the men fought in, and though the sources vary on the numbers of men in each Manipur, there seems to be a consensus on 120 in each. Along each line there would be a space between each of these Manipurs that would be about the same size as another Manipur. Filling that space would be a manipur in the line behind, meaning that when a line had to fall back, they didn't get in the way of the manipurs behind them. If you could look down on this formation with a bird's eye view, the unit would look like a checkerboard. The manipurs themselves were also far less dense than that of the phalanx. Each Roman had a great deal of individual space, with about six feet between each soldier. This meant that if individual manipurs broke away, or were attacked in the sides, neither the entire formation or that individual maniple would fall apart, as the lines that were engaged could more easily be moved around. Now this army wasn't created overnight. It was grown and adapted through the later parts of the Second Samnite War. There were just six years of peace between Rome and the Samnites before the Third Samnite War broke out. As I said earlier, the Third Samnite War saw the Romans fighting on several fronts. They faced a combined alliance of Samnites to the southeast, Umbrians to the northeast, Etruscans to the northwest, and Celts way up in the north who didn't share a border with Rome. Early in the war, Rome defeated a Samnite army to the south in the Battle of Tiffinum. The lead up to this battle saw the Samnites trying to set up an ambush against one of the two Roman armies sent against them. But the consul, Quintus Fabius Maximus Rullianus, wasn't rushing into anything and properly scouted the areas before advancing into Samnite territory. He discovered the ambush and refused to enter the valley where the Samnites were waiting for them. He sent out a small force of Astarte to find a way around the valley and possibly a way to flank the Samnites. But the Samnite commander was worried the second Roman army would arrive, 
doubling the current 20,000 men he faced to 40,000. And so he left the valley and offered Rulianus battle, which Rulianus accepted. The two armies engaged each other, and the Samnites were gaining the upper hand. It is likely they were fighting so hard because they were worried that second Roman army could arrive at any time. And with 25,000 men, the Samnites had the advantage. They were in fact winning the fight, but suddenly Roman soldiers appeared behind the Samnite lines. Everyone thought this was the second Roman army. The morale of the Samnites collapsed, and they fled the battle. Because this had been so hard fought, Rulianus' forces were far too tired to pursue the Samnites, so casualties are relatively low. As the dust settled, it was soon discovered the Roman soldiers behind the Samnite lines were not that of the other army, but the small detachment of Hastati that Rulianus had sent out on the flanking mission before the battle. If the Samnites knew the true size of the force behind them, they may not have fled the battlefield. Nevertheless, as a result of this victory, the Romans were able to concentrate a great deal of their forces in the north, where in 295 BC, the Battle of Sentinum took place. The Romans fielded a double consular army, along with fellow Latin allies, and a mix of Roman, Latin, and Campania cavalry. The forces thought to have been some 40,000 men strong. The Samnites had managed to travel north and link up with their allies to put together a truly massive army designed to defeat the Romans once and for all. With this battle being a double consular army, there were two men leading the Romans at Sentium. The first was Rulianus, the general who secured victory against the Samnites in the last battle. The second was Publius Decius Mus, at the request of Rulianus. Facing the Romans was a combined army of 80,000 men, double the size of the Roman force. Rulianus decided to send a small garrison into the local lands of Umbria and Etruria. This did exactly what Rulianus hoped it would, as the Umbrians and Etruscans left to protect their homes. Now the army facing Rome was just somewhere in the region of 50,000 men, and so they offered battle. Leading the Roman left wing against the Celts was Mus, while on the right wing was Rulianus against the Samnites. The Celts sent their chariots against the Roman left, which proved very effective, and soon the lines were crumbling. But supposedly Mus pulled a move from his father's playbook, a man who had also been one of the leaders in a double consular army some 50 years before. According to the legend, and according to the historian Livy, both consuls, that's Mus's father, also called Publius Decius Mus, just to make things, you know, extra confusing, had the same dream before the battle, that basically, whichever general sacrificed himself in battle, his army would secure victory for the Romans. The two consuls talked about their shared dream, and agreed that whichever wing was the first to start to falter, that general would go ahead and sacrifice himself in battle. That wing was the left wing, with the older Mus commanding, and so he performed a ritual and charged his horse into the enemy lines, and fought with such violence and in such a dramatic way, that very soon the opposing soldiers refused to fight him, and only eventually killed him with projectiles or darts. The Roman left then rallied, and the whole army held their ground and won the battle. So the younger Mus, seeing his left wing faltering like his father's before him, knew there was only one thing he could do charge the enemy line and get himself killed. And just like the battle nearly half a century before, Mus's men rallied and the lines held strong. At the same time, on the other wing, Rulianus had defeated the Samnites, who were now in full retreat, and was able to plough his reserve Triarii into the flanks of the Celts. 
the Celts, unable to stand against this new attack, joined their Samnite allies in retreat. The allies lost an estimated 20,000 men dead on the field, with another 13,000 men captured. The Romans, in contrast, had just 8,000 dead. The Samnites were one of Rome's greatest enemies. They would keep on fighting this war, despite loss after loss after loss, until they finally surrendered in 290 BC. With the end of this war, Rome found itself in control of central Italy, with allies across the peninsula. With the Romans dominating central Italy, and Pyrrhus firmly in control of Epirus, the stage was set, and all that was missing was a trigger. In the case of the Pyrrhic War, that trigger was a Greek city called Tarentum, in Magna Graecia. Magna Graecia is a region in southern Italy that at the time was filled with various Greek colonies. Tarentum was Sparta's only colony, sitting at the top of the heel of the boot of Italy. It was a wealthy city and a trading centre with a good navy but a weak army. We are all familiar with small events spiralling out of control, and Tarentum's fight with a city called Turii that was allied with the Romans is a perfect example of that. The Turii, another city in Magna Graecia, well out of Roman territory, further south even than Tarentum, had asked the Romans for help in a war against a people called the Lucanians. The Romans agreed and helped break the Lucanians. Back in Tarentum, the leaders were getting worried about the Romans. Turii had invited a Roman garrison into the city, which was not at all far away from Tarentum. The Roman encroachment into Magna Graecia was beginning. In 282 BC, while celebrating a festival, the people of Tarentum spotted Roman ships in their bay. The Romans actually had a treaty with Tarentum, and part of that treaty forbade Rome from entering their waters. The ten boats in this small fleet were on their way to supply and reinforce the garrison in Turii. This incensed Tarentum. They saw it as a hostile act and a breaking of the treaty between the two powers. They immediately attacked the small Roman fleet, sinking some of the ships, capturing one, and killing the admiral. Tarentum knew it didn't stand a chance in a war against Rome, and so they searched around for allies. They found that ally just across the Adriatic, in Pyrrhus of Epirus. While waiting for Pyrrhus, Tarentum moved their government, army, and fleet to Turii. The small Roman garrison withdrew from the city before they arrived. Diplomatic attempts made by the Romans to end hostilities before they got out of hand failed, so war was officially declared. It didn't take long for Rome to send an army against the city of Tarentum. Despite there being no more government, army, or fleet, the Romans still put the city under siege and plundered it. A little later that year, Tarentum put an army together that also included some Salentinian and, of course, Samnite reinforcements. But they were easily defeated by the Romans, forcing Tarentum to the peace table. Before the talks really got anywhere, they were suddenly called off by Tarentum. Their ally had arrived. Pyrrhus was in Italy. But why did Pyrrhus accept the call for help? Well, he was actually in Tarentum's debt. They had helped him in a previous campaign to conquer the island of Corcyra. But it wasn't just this debt. Greek politics of the time is so full of backstabbing and betrayal, and Pyrrhus could have easily ignored his fellow Greeks on the other side of the Adriatic. Remember, at this point, that Rome is considered strictly a regional issue. Powerful in central Italy but nothing on the world stage that is Greece, Macedon, and the successor kingdoms of Alexander the Great. 
Pyrrhus looked across the water and saw a place to make an easy empire for himself. He also knew the recent history of the region well, and the animosity felt towards the Romans by other Italian tribes, as well as the many Greek cities in southern Italy, and even Sicily. The defeat of Rome would be easy with the help of the Samnites, Lucanians, Brutians, various Illyrian tribes, and those Greek cities. To Pyrrhus, Rome was an afterthought, a stepping stone along the way to his ultimate goal of retaking Macedon and holding it. He believed he needed to take southern Italy, Sicily, and Carthage in North Africa to earn enough money and gain enough manpower to take Macedon. As you can tell, the Greeks thought very highly of themselves and of each other. Though he wasn't so arrogant that he didn't properly prepare for the war he was embarking on in Italy. As was typical of the backstabbing nature at the time, Pyrrhus actually borrowed money and soldiers from the current Macedonian king, the king he was ultimately planning to overthrow with these very soldiers, as well as from his old friend Ptolemy II, whose father, Ptolemy I, had recently passed away. Ptolemy promised Pyrrhus 9,000 soldiers and 50 war elephants, and Pyrrhus recruited archers from Rhodes and cavalry from Thessaly. Pyrrhus crossed the Adriatic with 25,000 men and 20 war elephants. Somewhat amazingly for the time, Pyrrhus made the crossing without suffering any losses, landing on the shores of Italy with his army intact. It wasn't his whole army, but it was a substantial chunk of it, and those war elephants would be very effective. This major power, with a formidable army, led by a king with experience fighting the successors of the best general in all world history, was in Italy to carve out an empire. Considering the enormity of the task ahead of him, Pyrrhus didn't rush into anything. He sent out various envoys and other people to contact the Greeks of southern Italy, asking for alliances and soldiers. While Pyrrhus was just sitting there, the Romans did what the Romans do best in times of crisis. They mobilised. They put together eight whole legions and auxiliaries, all told some 80,000 men, splitting them into four armies. One army, led by the consul Tiberius Corincanius, was sent north against the Etruscans, with the objectives of preventing them from joining Pyrrhus. Another army, led by the general Barbula, was sent south to harass the Samnites and Lucanians, preventing them from also joining Pyrrhus. One of the armies was left to defend Rome, in case the worst happened. The final army, led by Publius Valerius Livinus, marched towards Tarentum. With all the actions Rome was taking against Pyrrhus's major would-be allies, it didn't take long for the king to realise that those reinforcements he'd asked for were not coming. Much of the rest of the Greeks in southern Italy were not ready to join Pyrrhus either. They may have all been Greeks, but Pyrrhus wasn't from Italy. If he lost the upcoming conflict, he could sail back home, leaving everyone else in a war they stood no chance of winning. When he realised those allies and reinforcements were not coming, Pyrrhus decided to move. He took his army to a plain near a river called Cirrus and waited for the Romans to come to him. The plain was perfect for his army. The Romans arrived on the other side of the river as Pyrrhus knew they would. If the Romans wanted to fight, they'd have to cross the river, and an army crossing a river is no quick or easy feat. Pyrrhus was set up quite far back from the river in order to take full advantage of the terrain during the upcoming battle. He posted scouts to watch the Romans and report back when they began crossing. The estimates of how many men Pyrrhus had with him at the Battle of Heraclea are somewhere between 25 and 35,000. Levinus 
had something like 30,000 Romans. Everything was ready for the first battle between the new Roman Manipal and a classic Macedonian phalanx. At dawn on the day of the battle, the Romans began to cross the river. First across were the cavalry, who attacked Pyrrhus's scouts on the flanks, forcing them to flee. After this encounter, Pyrrhus personally led his own Macedonian and Thessalian cavalry against their Roman counterparts, while the Epirate cavalry moved against the Roman infantry who were still trying to cross the river and set up their formation. They managed to disrupt the setup, but withdrew quickly before getting bogged down, which is when cavalry is most vulnerable. After the Epirates withdrew, Pyrrhus's archers and Peltasts began to fire their arrows and throw their spears, disrupting the Romans even more. But the Romans got themselves across and set up. That's when the phalanxes closed the gap and attacked the legions. The length of both lines were about the same, with the cavalry fighting over the flanks. Pyrrhus may have had more men, but phalanxes were always a little deeper than the maniples, so his line didn't stretch further. Despite the phalanx's efforts, they failed to break the Romans, who were fighting harder than any other enemy they had faced before. The Romans made their own attacks, but also failed to break their enemy. The fight was a very even affair, but Pyrrhus hadn't yet committed all of his forces. He still had his elephants in reserve. It doesn't matter how well trained you are, how strong or tough you are, you cannot be properly prepared for your first encounter with a war elephant if you didn't even know they existed a few moments ago. Remember, this isn't an age where people come back from faraway parts of the world with beautiful photographs or high-definition videos of what they've seen. This is a world of writing and hearsay. Imagine you've come from somewhere in Asia or Africa, and you've seen and touched an elephant. You're with people who have never even heard of elephants before. Try and describe one. How easy is that? How believable is it? Now imagine you're facing one on the battlefield. All you have is a spear or a short sword and a shield. And as a general of an army suddenly facing elephants, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to prepare for that? The biggest animals on any Roman battlefield up until now have been horses. Even war machines like siege engines are still in their infancy and only really used when sieging a large city or town, not on an open battlefield. Elephants were not used in the same way cavalry was. In war, tactically, they are not simply big horses. They are used to instill fear and panic in their enemies, and when they charge infantry, their job is to disrupt the enemy's lines as best as possible. That would allow the rest of the soldiers to move in and mop up the enemy now their lines had been effectively destroyed. The elephants were deployed on the flanks, a part of the battle Pyrrhus was on the verge of losing. As soon as the Roman cavalry saw and smelt the elephants, they simply turned and ran, ignoring all their riders. The elephants turned the battle on the flank quickly, easily and decisively. A Roman maniple may not have been anywhere near as vulnerable in their flanks as a phalanx, but they weren't prepared for elephants charging into their side. This close-fought battle was moments away from turning into a massacre of Roman soldiers. Pyrrhus then sent his own cavalry used to the sights and smells of the elephants, into the disorganised legions where they began cutting the Romans to pieces. But at the last minute, the Romans caught a bit of luck. One of the elephants trampling through the Roman lines was badly wounded and caused the rest of the elephants to panic. 
This gave them enough time to withdraw themselves from the battle and move back across the river in an orderly manner. These Romans were not who Pyrrhus thought he'd be fighting. That close-run battle was only won because of his elephants, and despite the Romans being smashed, utterly broken and defeated, they made an orderly withdrawal from the battlefield, not just turning and running for their lives. The two major sources we have for this battle give differing accounts on the numbers of dead. Dionysus says the Romans lost 15,000 and Pyrrhus lost 11, while Hieronymus says it was more like 7,000 dead on the Roman side and 3,000 on Pyrrhus's. But the point stands, Pyrrhus had lost far more men than he would have expected for such a small victory. The battle showed two things. First, the new Manipur could indeed hold its own against the phalanx. In fact, it was only the introduction of the elephants that turned the tide. Second was that the Republic and its allies were stronger than Pyrrhus had thought. Despite losing, the Romans didn't surrender and her allies didn't abandon her. But Pyrrhus had proven his own mettle too, and with the Romans now on the run, a few Italian tribes joined Pyrrhus, though not as many as he hoped. But that great enemy of Rome, the Samnites, were able to join their forces with his. He then marched north through Campania and into Latium. Eventually, he was just two days' march from Rome itself. The Romans' response was to recruit more men and reinforce Lavinius's beaten army, who was now following Pyrrhus into Latium. Despite what might sound like a dire moment for Rome, she still had four armies, all converging on Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus realised he didn't have enough men to win a fight against all the Roman armies on multiple fronts in a single battle. So he withdrew from Latium into Campania and offered peace terms. But the Romans rejected him. Despite losing the last battle, it wasn't a devastating loss, and there were still plenty of Romans under arms, and the armies were growing each day. Eventually, Pyrrhus moved east, invading a region called Apuleia. There, a Roman army was waiting for him, this time on ground chosen by the Romans. The terrain was hilly woodland, which helped negate the power of Pyrrhus's cavalry and elephants, as well as cause problems for keeping an intact phalanx. Rome also brought with them some 300 pieces of anti-elephant equipment. The sources seem to agree that both sides had armies that were about the same size, 40,000 infantry and cavalry, while the Greeks still had their 20 war elephants. The Romans were learning from the problems they had when they faced Pyrrhus last time, but Pyrrhus was also learning from the Roman maniple and decided to incorporate some of his new light Italian troops into his phalanx to make it a little more flexible. Both armies deployed their infantry in the centre with the cavalry on the wings, but Pyrrhus held his personal cavalry and the elephants in reserve. With the unevenness of the terrain and the woodland, the cavalry didn't see much use. It was down to the infantry. The two sides clashed, and different legions saw different results, with the first legion, along with various other Roman allies, being broken by the Macedonians on the left. But on the right, the third and fourth legions were able to beat back Pyrrhus's allies opposite them. Pyrrhus was also forced to use his reserve cavalry when a small Deune force allied to the Romans attacked the Greek camp behind the battlefield. He then sent the elephants against the third and fourth legions before they could fully break Pyrrhus's allies. Just like the last battle, the elephants forced the Romans to retreat, but this time, instead of retreating into a river, they were able to hide in a heavily wooded area on some very high ground. 
with the Greeks and their allies unable to reach the Romans in their new position, they sent archers in and other projectile units to flush them out, but it didn't work. Pyrrhus then sent the Samnites and other Italians who were better equipped for the terrain. However, they weren't equipped for the Roman cavalry, who managed to smash them before they could climb up the hill. Dusk soon came and both sides withdrew, neither really having gotten the upper hand. The battle rolled on to the second day, where Pyrrhus sent his light infantry to the high ground straight away, preventing the Romans from using the terrain to their advantage this time around. The Romans had two choices, fight in the open or leave the battlefield. Just like in the previous battles, each side had a huge single line of infantry, which slammed into each other, with neither side able to break the other. Not until the elephants arrived, quickly smashing through the Roman line. So what is anti-elephant technology? Well, it includes things like chariots fitted with extra-long spikes designed to hit the elephant's legs, pots filled with materials that were easily burned to scare them, and units armed with lots of spears that proved effective at Heraclea. The problem with this anti-elephant force was how exposed it turned out to be. With the elephants already broken through, there was a huge hole in the line. Pyrrhus filled it with missile soldiers. Very light infantry armed with slings, javelins, spears and other light projectile weapons. The anti-elephant forces seemed to be starting to have some effect, but they were quickly knocked out by these missile units. Now the elephants were free to charge through the Roman ranks, just as Pyrrhus and his personal cavalry he had held back in reserve charged. The Romans were beaten once again, and 11,000 men lay dead on the field, 3,000 of them being Pyrrhus's, and they included many of his best officers. Talking about the aftermath of the battle, Plutarch wrote, The armies separated, and, it is said, Pyrrhus replied to one that gave him joy of his victory, that one more such victory would utterly undo him for he had lost a great part of the forces he brought with him, and almost all his particular friends and principal commanders. There were no others there to make recruits, and he found the confederates in Italy backward. On the other hand, as from a fountain continually flowing out of the city, the Roman camp was quickly and plentifully filled up with fresh men, not at all abating in courage for the loss they sustained." but even from their very anger, gaining new force and resolution to go on with the war. Pyrrhus had won both battles, and the Romans had left far more men dead on the field, but the Romans had a far greater pool of manpower from which to recruit new soldiers, and not only wouldn't the Romans give up, but their allies would stick by them. This was the same in the previous wars with the Samnites, and it would be the same in future wars against Carthage, and even if the Romans were beaten, they wouldn't accept peace, not until they beat you, and the peace was offered by them, alongside imposing harsh penalties. Pyrrhus sent peace envoys to Rome, but the Romans just refused to even speak with him while he was still in Italy. It is from these so-called victories we get the term Pyrrhic victory. He soon leaves Italy for Sicily, where he fights a war with Carthage and becomes the king of Syracuse, fights various tribes and peoples across the island before attempting to return to Italy, twice failing. The first time, the crossing was stopped by a Carthaginian navy, and the second time, it was stopped by a storm. 
And while all this is going on, the Romans were doing just what the Italian Greeks feared they would do. They were continuing the war with those who had allied with Pyrrhus, defeating the Samnites at the Battle of Crinita Hill. Pyrrhus, constantly taking heavy losses with little in the way of reinforcements, rolled the dice one more time, and this time he made it to Italy. But in 275 BC, at the Battle of Beneventum, the Romans were very well prepared. They knew exactly how to deal with the elephants, throwing a special kind of spear in the side of the beasts, causing them to turn and run in panic, trampling their own soldiers. Without the elephants, Pyrrhus was unable to break the Romans, and the battle ended with neither side able to claim victory. But the battle was devastating for an army in enemy territory with no reinforcements. Knowing how disappointed Pyrrhus was after losing 4,000 and then 3,000 men should help put the losses of an estimated 11,000 dead Greeks and allies into some perspective. Pyrrhus soon left Italy to the Romans, and over the next few years they secured their hole over the rest of the peninsula. On leaving, he was supposed to have said, What a battlefield I am leaving for Carthage and Rome. It wouldn't take long before Rome and Carthage would find themselves at war, and Rome would be turning into the true empire we think of today. Even though the Romans went on to defeat the Samnites, invading the last of their territory and planting their own colonies, they would still be a thorn in Rome's side. First, they sided with Hannibal, when the great general led his Carthaginian army into Italy during the Second Punic War that lasted between 218 and 201 BC. Secondly, they were one of the final peoples of Italy to give in during the Social War, more than a hundred years later and nearly two hundred years after Pyrrhus leaves Italy, between 91 and 88 BC. Not until 82 BCE and the dictator for life Sulla do we see the Samnites permanently exit the stage after what can only be described as a campaign of ethnic cleansing. As for Pyrrhus, he would actually go on to win the throne of Macedon after just a single easy battle. But two years later, he lost his son, named after his close friends the Ptolemies, while retreating from an unsuccessful attack against Sparta. That same year, he led his army into the city of Argos, but once within the gates, it said he was hit by a roof tile thrown by a woman, angry to see her home occupied. Knocked to the ground, dazed and confused, an Argive soldier simply beheaded the general. His body was cremated with all honours due to him, and his last surviving son, who was with him in Argos, was sent back to Epirus. The future of the Greeks and Macedonians was not bright. They could never stop fighting each other long enough to put up any real resistance against the Romans, who eventually took both nations with ease. The defeat of Pyrrhus, or rather more the wearing down of Pyrrhus, was a major stepping stone on the way to forming the great empire that we think of today. <laughs>